Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Well, good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us. I'm John Hardman, the President and CEO of the Carter Center, and welcome you to the first of this season's conversations at the Carter Center. This series gives you an opportunity to learn more about the work of what we do around the world, and we share that with you, our Atlanta neighbors, but also welcome people from all over the U.S. who've joined us tonight. We encourage you to learn more about this series and also to watch past events from the conversation series at our website, which is cardisoner.org slash conversations. For those of, you, uh, those of you who know how to do this, you can also uh, get on the Carter Center podcast of the, any of this series on iTunes, if you know how to access iTunes. <laughs> I need help from my children. <laughs> Tonight we welcome the Carter Center Rosalind Carter Mental Health Journalism Fellows, the Fellowship Board, the Mental Health Task Force members, our Ambassador Circle and Legacy Circle members, the Board of Trustees and Board of Counselors members. Now for the next hour and a half, you'll be able to hear President and Mrs. Carter talk about all of the events that we have been carrying on for the past year, their travels, their work, and they will also answer your questions. So you should have had a, co or, or index card at your seat, and I hope you fill that out. And during the next 30 minutes, someone will be walking through the audience to be able to pick up those cards with your questions. And the Carters are looking forward to answering them. But right now, we will have a brief video of some of the work of the center. in my country and the Carter Center has has offered me the opportunity to work in changing that reality. We are not uh, passive receivers of goodwill and charity. We are people who are becoming empowered to deal with our problems. We are trying to strengthen the networks already existing here and we are trying to strengthen the capacities of the Venezuelans to face their problems and to share with them tools and our knowledge. We are an independent, non-governmental organization. We're independent of, of the U.S. government. We do not represent the U.S. government. And that actually gives, gives us an advantage. Uh, we have no control over economic sanctions or decisions of other governments. All we have is moral authority and uh, reputation. And that gives us actually more flexibility. This is the first time Indonesians are allowed to elect directly their own leader. 
So they are now exercising their civil right to elect their leader. This is a very crucial work for an international institution to be here in Indonesia, in Indonesia because uh, with their presence, for example, Carter Center, with their presence here, it will boost the legitimacy of this election. If we find it difficult to make our own statement because of uh, political situation, then we rely on international uh, observers to uh, state our statements. I think that they give people hope. Uh, at least uh, they, give, uh, they give them hope that the operation itself will happen in, a, in a, the right way. The Carter Center is allowing really the people to express their voice. The presence of Carter Center and President Carter himself Observing this election gives the Palestinian more trust, more hope that this election will be real, democratic uh, and fair election. With international observers here, uh, we, we feel safe that the, um, what people want is what people are going to get, not what the government wants. When the international observers are here, we feel confident that we are not alone here. I think one of the uh, strengths of the Carter Center is that it focuses not just on elections, just that it has other programs as well. In, uh, in Africa, the Carter Center is working on uh, five diseases. They have in common the fact that they affect poor people in rural areas. They generally do not kill people directly, but they are debilitating and all of them can be treated or prevented very effectively with tools that we have now. The uniqueness of the Carter Center programs is that it has addressed some of these problems that are, are particularly um, found in rural settings and therefore has transformed the, the lives of many rural people. The Carter Center wants the country to be able to function on its own, and we rarely uh, take ownership of the projects that we do. We want the local people and the local governments to be successful. This was once the highest endemic village for guinea worm disease remaining in Nigeria. This village of a little over 150 people has had zero cases of guinea worm disease. Person by person, village by village, we're getting rid of this disease in Nigeria. I think there is a lot of respect and trust for the Carter Center. In recognizing the needs and in building hope, I think that the Carter Center is actually build, building power for the people, is actually building the, upon the capacities that the, the, the same people have to deal with their own problems and their own needs. President and Mrs. Carter founded the Carter Center 26 years ago as a nonprofit, and since that time, we have been able to improve the lives of millions working in over 70 countries. The Carters, our board members, and a staff of 150 wage peace, fight disease, and build hope by engaging both at the highest levels of government 
and working side by side with the poor and often forgotten people in the country. Of course, the Carters are our hardest working volunteers and they travel the world working with our staff to monitor elections, resolve conflicts, promote human rights, eradicate diseases, as well as increase food production in some of the poorest nations in the world. Their vision for the world at peace guides what we do here at the Carter Center, and it also serves as an inspiration for millions of people as they strive for a better life. So it's with great admiration that I welcome two of the most inspiring leaders of our times, President and Mrs. Carter. Roger has an announcement to make. <clears throat> have an announcement to make. Troy Davis was supposed to be executed at 7 o'clock tonight, and the Supreme Court issued him a stay of execution. <laughs> <It's thrilled. laughs> two hours ago, two hours before, the, <clears throat> before it was supposed to happen. Uh, the Carter Center weighs in very heavily on the death penalty, particularly in this case when we don't think the... Uh, sentence person uh, was guilty. There were nine uh, people who testified against him at his trial in 1991, as a matter of fact, and uh, seven of them have recounted their testimony, and the last two, one of them was the one that actually accused of the crime. So we weighed in, and along with uh, the Pope and uh, Bishop Tutu and uh, <laughs> And many other people, and luckily they weighed in. But they, the Supreme Court will hear the case on Monday. And all we were asking for was a stay until the Supreme Court could hear it, but he was scheduled to be executed just a few minutes ago. Well, my job is to give you a brief rundown on what the Carter Center has been doing the last 26 years. <laughs> uh, and last then, year. Rosen says the last year. But uh, we were organized 26 years ago. The Carter Center was uh, set up as a non-governmental organization, as John Hardman has said. We've had the basic uh, principles to which we've always adhered. Uh, we don't duplicate what others are doing. We're not afraid to take a chance on things that don't look like they're going to be successful. We are nonpartisan. We reach out to Republicans and other leaders to balance out our position politically. And also, we go into the countries that are most in need in a very aggressive way. The Carter Center has a full-time partnership with Emory University. Half of our trustees are appointed by Emory, and we appoint the other half, and so we have a very close working relationship with that great uh, institution. Just a few things uh, to bring you up to date before we have Rosa's presentation and the question. Uh, in December, the first three days in December, we'll have a Human Rights Defenders Conference. We've had a series of these since George W. Bush has been in the White House because our country has lost its reputation as the one on earth that was raising the banner of, of human rights. And so because we've lowered our standards, particularly after 
Uh, other countries have also lowered their standards. So we try to have about 40 countries represented here by defenders who are being persecuted extraordinarily by their own government. And when this happens, we always send the key spokespersons from that group of defenders up to Washington to meet with uh, cabinet officers and to meet with the key leaders in the Congress, uh, both Republicans and Democrats. And this time, of course, our dele delegation will go to whoever is elected president uh, in, in early in November. The Middle East has been a major concern of, of mine for 30 years, and the Carter Center plays a major role there. We are looking at the totality of the Mideast peace process, which involves not only Israel and Hamas, Israel and Fatah, but also includes other countries, Lebanon and Syria, and about 40% of the population of Palestine. So in April, we went over there representing the Carter Center, uh, Rosa and I and others, and we met with uh, the Israelis, the leaders. We met with uh, Hamas leaders. We met with Fatah leaders. We met with the Syrian president. And uh, since then, we've had a delegation to go to Lebanon, and things seem to be developing in a way that if the United States would play a positive and balanced role, could very well bring peace uh, to the Mideast. The Egyptians are helping, for instance, with private negotiations between Israel and Hamas, and sometimes the United States and Hamas. And because of a seed that we planted when we were over there in April, later there has been a ceasefire in Gaza. All the rockets going into Sederat have been stopped, and the Israelis have quit attacking Gaza. And so that's a, a ceasefire that bodes well uh, for the future. We would like very much to see the Palestinians have a chance to bring unity within all of the West Bank and Gaza. And both factions of the uh, Palestinians want that. All the Arab countries want it. That's now being pre prevented by the policies of the United States and indirectly Israel. Well, we hope to change that back. China, we continue a major program in China. We're changing a little bit. About the last 10 years, we've been involved in helping the Chinese orchestrate purely democratic elections in 650,000 little villages. And they've been pure democracies. Uh, that program has come to a, an end, except that we're still issuing our, our uh, computer programs, giving an analysis, and we'll help us call upon But we're shifting now more to health care with the Chinese. We're going to try to help improve their health care system for their rural areas and also economic development. And we'll be, we're planning now a major conference sponsored by the Chinese and the Carter Center to deal with health care in Africa. So that's a, a change in... Uh, direction, but it still will continue our close work uh, with the Chinese. I'll be going back over there, by the way, in January to celebrate the 30th anniversary of normal diplomatic relations between the United States and China, which Deng Xiaoping and I announced on the, tw on the 15th day of December, of, yes, December 1978, and it went into effect the first day of January. So this is brought for the first time in 35 years full diplomatic relations between the United States and China, and so we'll be doing some other things, obviously, while we're over there. Nepal is an area that I have been to three times in the last year. I would say we had, that was our 71st election that we've monitored, and perhaps the most significant of all, because it brought to an end 240 years of a Hindu kingdom that was very oppressive. And it also opened up the opportunity, which is now going into effect, of developing a democratic republic to replace that Hindu kingdom. At the same time, it ended 
a 12-year civil war. And the third thing it did was to open up opportunities for formerly marginalized people, including 13% of the, uh, of the Nepalese population who are untouchables. And they now will have 13% of the seats in the parliament to write a new constitution. By the way, women are being given an equal opportunity as well, and also other marginalized uh, people. So that's one of the things that we've done in Nepal. We're still monitoring these elections after they're over. Liberia is another area where the Carter Center has monitored two elections. As you know, the last election we held there resulted in the election of the first woman president in Africa, and we've been working very closely with her. The rural uh, legal system has been an abomination in the past. And, and Helen Sirleaf Johnson, the president, has asked the Carter Center to try to revise the rural system of uh, administration of law. This will be particularly important for women. There are, there are no laws in some of those areas against rape. Rape is permissible and is not punished legally. We're trying to change that. In some areas of the rural parts of uh, Liberia, a woman doesn't have a chance to, to own property at all. If a husband dies, a widow cannot inherit his property. We're trying to change those things. In Ghana, we'll have an election this December. We've been to Ghana quite a bit. We've had agriculture programs in Ghana, and also uh, we've had uh, guinea worm programs in Ghana. I'll give you a report on that in just, in just a few minutes and other things. Guinea worm, that brings me down to guinea worm. Uh, we have now, we started out with guinea worm in about 20 countries, over 23,000 villages. We've been to all of them now. Uh, we've uh, brought from three and a half million cases down to less than 10,000. That's a 99.7% reduction. That was as of last year when we only had three tenths left. We had five countries then that had guinea worms still, as was mentioned in the film. Nigeria has not found a case this year. Niger has not found a case this year. Ghana has had an 84% reduction, and southern Sudan has had a 50% reduction. The only country now about which we are a little bit concerned is Mali, northeast of Timbuktu. Rose and I have been we up there. Uh, they still have a few cases because they have uh, some violence in that particular area around Goa, and we can't get in to monitor the situation very well. But uh, we think that by this, by this year, we'll have a, a substantial additional uh, reduction. River blindness, we just finished uh, giving our 100 and 102 million treatments for guinea worm, and we've made very, with river blindness, and we've made uh, very good progress there. And Latin America, for instance, we started out with six countries. Uh, since 1995, they've had no cases of blindness because of river blindness, and we are eliminating now the last vestiges of the minute worms uh, called microfilaria microscopic worms in the bodies of uh, people in, in, uh, in South America. We're get, making good progress there as well. In trachoma, we've now finished building 500,000 latrines. I'm still the champion latrine builder in all the world. And, uh, Jim God, said he went from being president of the United States to the builder of largest number of latrines in the world. <laughs> By the way, Ghana is a... Ghana is the first uh, country in, in sub-Saharan Africa that has now had uh, trachoma, that's a blindness, the number one cause of preventable blindness, eliminated as a health risk. 
I'm going very rapidly, as you can tell. Malaria, we, the Carter Center has finished uh, distributing 3 million um, insecticide-treated, long-lasting insecticide-treated uh, nets. We put two nets in every home on an average in our part of uh, Ethiopia, and we are helping the government put in 17 million more nets. This means that all the people in Ethiopia who live in a low enough altitude to have malaria mosquitoes will soon have two nets in each home on an average. And the first year that we did this, the first six months, we found a 50% reduction in the incidence of malaria. And by the way, I might add that the ones who die from malaria are almost invariably children less than five years old and pregnant women. If you have malaria and you live to five years old, then you are not likely to die with malaria. You still suffer, but you don't die. Lymphatic filariasis is another one. That's called elephantiasis, which means the enormous swelling, grotesque swelling of arms and legs and sexual organs and so forth. We've now finished our 20 millionth treatment. And lymphatic filariasis is responding quite well to the uh, insecticide-treated nets that we put out that kill mosquitoes because the same mosquitoes in the same areas carry malaria and lymphatic filariasis. And the last one is schistosomiasis. I'll mention that. In three Nigerian states, we, we, all of our treatments in the past, up through 2007, were one million treatments, and we now will do one million treatments in, in 2008 alone. So our health programs are going quite well, uh, and our, our other programs to promote uh, freedom and democracy and hope are also doing quite well. I've covered everything just about except mental health, and I'll turn the program over now to my wife, who's eagerly pushing me in the side, and she wants to get to mental health. <laughs> The first thing I wanted to say is that um, we went to Timbuktu and when we got off the airplane this young man met us and he, his name was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> his mother had been there once. Jimmy's mother had been there and she had been praying for rain. They had all had a terrible, terrible drought. And she stepped off of the airplane into a rain and it poured down rain while she was there. So they all loved her. Well. I think I was standing at the door and I think I heard John say that my um, journalism fellows were here. Um, we have, um, I th most of you I think come a lot and know about our, our journalism fellows, but we have in our mental health program, we award um, fellowships to journalists who will write and, and well, to the media, who will use the media uh, to talk about mental health and educate people about mental illnesses. And um, so they've been here for two days. We've been meeting. The first day was a training session for the new ones. We have 10 every, every year, that, 10 new ones. We have six from the United States, two from South Africa, and two from Romania. We had, we, and we, we have them for five years, and we teach them how to run the program, and then they're on their own in that country. So we, New Zealand was the first um, international program, and they now have a really good program of their own in uh, New Zealand. But um, um, today we had a training session, yesterday I think, a training session, and today we had the new ones telling us what they're going to do, the subject, the mental health subject that they're going to work on, and the old ones telling us what they did during this past year. And um, it was really exciting. And I want them, I mean, it just, oh, it's 
I think, my most exciting time here because they choose a subject to report on, and we have, I think we had 94 uh, applicants, and we could only choose 10, and uh, so they are the best, the uh, cream of the crop, and I'm just really proud of them, and we were listening to them today talk about what they had done and what they're going to do, and it was exciting. So I want you to stand up, and also, wait just a minute, also we have, <laughs> for each one of them, we have an advisor, a, a journalism advisor, and a mental health advisor. And these are the top people in the field in our country. And so I want the journalism fellows and the advisors to stand up for me. Thank you. And there are a couple of um, we have one new program um, working with Morehouse on training, uh, trying to educate primary care doctors how to recognize mental illnesses. Primary care doctors get almost no um, training in mental health issues, um, how to diagnose um, mental illnesses. And sometimes only three months in all of their medical training. And so the People go to the primary care doctor first, almost always, uh, when they have a mental illness. And so many times the primary care doctor, well, most of the time, the primary care doctor can't recognize the illness. And they keep going back and going back uh, to the doctor. And so we want primary care doctors to know enough to recognize mental illnesses and to know um, to whom to um, refer the patient. And so we're working, and that, we just started that program. It's something I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, we have another possible program. I'm, I'm pulling for the people here, for the, for the leaders of the Carter Center to adopt this program. <laughs> um, the, the conflict resolution program in Liberia has been asking us to please come and work on mental health issues in Liberia. Because Liberia is at war for 18 years, and uh, a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I think, Ellen Shirley Johnson was elected, and um, she's been doing, trying to bring the country together, and we have programs there that Jimmy can tell you about. But um, um, we, Tom went, Tom Borneman is the head of the mental health program, and he has been to Liberia and done an assessment and um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I think we have enough water. <laughs> and he, he has been and, and made an assessment of, of what is needed there. And we have a NERF, which I don't know what it stands for. I don't know what the letters are, but it's, we have a, a plan that we want to pursue that we're going to get to um, John Hardman and Jimmy Carter. And... I think they might, I think they're going to prove it. <laughs> Let's see. And the other thing I wanted to say is. I'm not sure that's fair. <laughs> is that I'm writing a new mental health book. And writing is painful for me. And, and I, I put it off for a long time and because I thought Jimmy might leave me if I was. <laughs> anyway, I'm, he's a morning person. I'm a night person. And 
he doesn't like for me to work at night. We, it's, it's difficult. And, it's, and um, he wrote, but he writes so fast. He, he goes in his office and he writes. I, I labor over mine. It's just painful to me. And he wrote a book about his mother. And I think he wrote the whole book before I finished the first chapter of mine. <laughs> it's been on sale for a while. So, but let me see what else I had down here. Um, something else I wanted to Oh, we, one of the exciting things we did um, this summer was a trip to the Arctic. And National Geographic invited us to go on a trip with about 100 people and to look at global warming. And they had scientists, um, scientists on everything about global warming, I think. And uh, everybody that went was somebody that was an expert on the subject, I think except me. But I had to speak too. And we had panels. We had two panel discussions every day. It was really um, a little bit in, intense. We, we got off of the boat on different times and, um, and then had these sessions, um, uh, two-hour sessions. I think, we, I think we had three of them, but Jimmy says two. We had them at night. I know we had some at night after dinner, too. Um, but it was, it was fascinating. And I spoke about the um, trachoma program because we build the latrines and they can clean up. It's just incredible to see how they clean up the environment in the villages when they build the latrines. And so that was what I talked about. But what was amazing to me was we went up to the ice cap. And um, the ice cap is 50 to 60 feet high and comes straight down to the water. And in one place, they have different kinds of ice the different names for the ice, but in one place where there was thin ice connecting icebergs, we saw the um, ice cap at a distance, but it was straight down and had waterfalls coming off of the top of it. And while we were looking at that, we saw, what, 160-something seals and 10 polar bears. They weren't, very, they weren't really close, but they were out in in that, that area. But then we went to, went to another, we went around the islands in, in northern Norway. And we went to the 89th parallel? No. Hmm? We went pretty close. And I think the ice cap, well, the ice cap starts at 90. Rosa, right? The North Pole is at 90. The North Pole is at 90, okay. But we, went, we didn't go quite to the North Pole. <laughs> no, but, but there's no land in the North Pole, and you can't go to the North Pole. But, um, the, the other place where we saw this was right down to the water, and we kayaked right at the bottom of that ice cap. It was, it was just a fascinating uh, trip. So, and you can tell them more about it. No, thanks. I, uh, well, let me, I'll tell you. <laughs> one, one more thing I want to tell. Uh, what, 90, did you know that 97% of all the water in the world is in the ocean? And 97% of what is left is in, uh, fresh water is in the ice cap. And we live on that 3% of the 3%. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. There you go. <laughs> and I just thought she that was She got something right. That's great. <laughs> well, I got it all right. We went up to the 80th, 80, 80 degrees latitude. Uh, I thought we went further. But the... Um, <laughs> 
the ice cap on the uh, on the southern uh, pole is three miles deep, and the ice cap on over Greenland is two miles deep. That's why you get so much uh, fresh water in the ice caps. Well, let's get back to the Carter Center uh, business <laughs> and, and and your questions now. I think that um, this helps me and Rosen a lot to take uh, trips other than just for the Carter Center. And, and this trip was a full week just exploring the um, ravages of global warming and what it's doing now to, uh, to animals and, 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 and to the sea level. Twelve villages in Alaska alone are now having to move back to higher ground because the protection is gone and the water is rising. So it's a very serious problem. But anyway, we get a chance to do some things on occasion that's not part of the Carter Center. John? Well, thank you very much, President and Mrs. Carter. Many of you may not be aware that we are experiencing a drought here in Atlanta, but I didn't know we were going to be making a water statement tonight. Uh, <laughs> here at the program. Uh, also, Mrs. Carter, we have heard your uh, statement about Liberia and depression, and uh, we'll move forward with that. And the, uh, as you know, this is being recorded, so I think this is almost our script for the next annual report of the Carter Center. So public information should find that very, uh, very easy to get our annual report moving. But we do have some good questions that you've come up with. The first uh, for President Carter, could you speak about similarities and differences between the emerging democracies with which the Carter Center works and the beginnings of our own Republican democracy in the US? Well, we have mixed uh, results from brand new democracies that the Carter Center has helped to form. When we're in uh, countries that are very poor and backward, quite, quite often working to teach them how to grow more food grain or to eradicate or eliminate or reduce the ravages of a disease, if they decide that they need to have an honest election, say to replace a dictatorship, or if their own fragile democracy is in danger, then they call on the Carter Center to help them because the last thing they want is for the United Nations or the U.S. government to come in. And we've done that, as I said, I think uh, Nepal was our 71st election, Ghana will be our 72nd election. Sometimes the elections don't turn out very well. Uh, we have helped with four elections, for instance, in Venezuela. And uh, Hugo Chavez has won every election fairly and squarely because he has about 62% solid support among the people. But he's used this enormous support based on the benefits he can give them from all revenues to get their loyalty. And he's just about taken over as a dictator. Uh, we also have had a very serious problem in Liberia, which we've mentioned already, when earlier on we had an election, I think, back in 1997, uh, and a, a very serious despot was elected to turn out to be a rogue and a thief and a, um, and a criminal, and he's now under trial uh, from the international uh, courts. Uh, Helen Johnson Sirleaf came in second to him at that, in that election, and she was finally elected. Sometimes, though, the, su the success is admirable. For instance, the first time we went into Indonesia, the fourth largest nation on earth and the largest Muslim country by far, 
uh, we were the only observers, the only major observers, and uh, they tried election for the first time. Uh, and they chose members of the parliament, there were 700 members of the parliament, and then the parliamentary members chose a president. Five years later, they tried again and they had direct elections of the president. That has worked out beautifully. So sometimes they work out well, sometimes they don't. We are monitoring every day now what's happening in Nepal because what they've done in Nepal is elect uh, a constitutional assembly that's made up, as I just described to you, with certain uh, percentages of women, certain percentages of outcasts and that sort of thing. And they are now in the process of uh, drafting and passing a new constitution to be the foundation, like our constitution many years ago, for a democratic republic. And they're very, they are now trying to decide what exact form to use uh, in their new government. So I would say that quite often these newly formed democracies are very similar in their histories of oppression, either from overseas or from uh, oppressors within their countries, and, and they found new, new uh, taste of freedom. And we try to stay as much as possible in those countries after the new nation is formed. It's a very exciting way for us to spend our time. And uh, in this hemisphere, for instance, when I became president, most of the nations in Latin America were dictatorships. If you looked at the map back in those days to Chile, Argentina, Paraguay, Peru, Brazil, and so forth, uh, Ecuador were all dictatorships. Now, all of them are democracies. And a lot of that was brought about by the breath of fresh air that we tried to bring them as president in promoting human rights. And with basic human rights being in the forefront, the people demand and achieve the right to choose their own leaders. That's one of the basic human rights. So it's a very exciting uh, prospect uh, for the future, but also uh, a very exciting past history for the Carter Center. President Carter, your 84th birthday is October 1st. What was the most unusual or best birthday gift that you've ever received? <laughs> Well, I wish I had gotten married on my birthday, then that wouldn't be any problem to answer. But, uh, <laughs> That's a hard thing to answer. I, I don't remember exactly what's happened on my birthday often, but uh, one thing that, that did happen was when I normalized diplomatic relations with China, it was uh, to form relationships with a country that was born on my birthday. And I think one of the reasons that Deng Xiaoping was so eager to cooperate with me was he thought that fate had brought us together in that the People's Republic of China was born on October the 1st, uh, 1949. I was born on October the 1st a few years earlier than that. So, but I, I think that the, um, the, the thing that happened best in my early life was having Rosen born in the house next to where I was living. We were next door neighbors when she, up until she was one year old and I was four years old and then I moved away from her but eventually found her back. So almost all of my birthdays have been very good. I went from a farm boy, as you know, to a state senator and then to a governor and to a president and now the highest point of my life is in the Carter Center but the best thing that's happened to me in my life has been marrying Rosen 62 years ago. Your influence as a former president and first lady 
has been a key to the Carter Center's success. How have you prepared the center to continue to have the same level of access and influence when you and Mrs. Carter are less actively involved with the center? We've been working on that for about 20 years, as a matter of fact, because we recognized that when I passed my 70, when I passed my 65th birthday and the 75th birthday, that we had to look to the future. And we've had a very good fortune of uh, negotiating legally a binding contract or partnership with Emory University, a great institution. And now we uh, correlate as close as possible the active programs of the Carter Center with the uh, foundation of research and academic standards of Emory University. And I mentioned very briefly in my opening remarks that half of our trustees are appointed by the Board of Trustees of Emory, and we have to approve them. It's kind of a pro forma thing. We nominate the other half of our trustees, and Emory does that. So that has provided a great foundation so that we hope 100 years from now, the Carter Center and Emory will still be working side by side and strengthening each other and maybe overcoming the problems that each other has. The second thing is, uh, when we first started, we had no money. The first few years when the Carter Center was going, we were in debt, trying to pay for all these buildings and everything that we had built on credit. Now we've built up an adequate uh, endowment fund. Uh, we have about $400 million in our endowment that Rosa and I have uh, helped to raise. Uh, our annual budget is about $40 million of that, so you can see we have to raise a little more than $100,000 a day uh, to support the Carter Center's programs, and all of you have helped a lot. But that, uh, that uh, treasure of uh, accumulated funds, which we have husbanded in a very, very conservative fiscal way, will tide the Carter Center over in the future if there are serious problems in fundraising or other things. Uh, we always hope that most of the Carter Center's programs will finance themselves just on their own merit, that people will invest in the Carter Center, as many of you have done, because they have confidence in what we're doing with the guinea worm and that sort of thing in the future. And I say the third thing is that we have built up very close alliances or partnerships with other leaders around the world. The best example of that is in this hemisphere. In the late 80s, we began a program of, of forming a, a council of freely elected heads of government. These are folks that have been elected throughout this hemisphere, all the way from Canada down through Chile and Argentina, uh, democratically. And when they serve their terms as president or prime minister, then they have joined our council. I've always been the chairman of it. The Carter Center has always been in charge of it. And we can call on them to help us in troubled areas in this hemisphere. Uh, if they have a troubled election, then I can get three or four of them to join with me in monitoring the election. They can go into the country ahead of time when I can't go. Uh, they usually speak the same language as the people there. And, uh, and or if they have hyperinflation, or if they have serious human rights abuses, or if they have uh, conflict threatened between two countries, I can call on my council members uh, to work side by side with us. And we've done the same thing in Africa. We'll have distinguished leaders, for instance, working with and for the Carter Center when we monitor the election in Ghana. So I would say those are the, basically the three things. And the fourth one is that we have established principles of operation, standards of ethical uh, conduct, uh, transparency or openness, a revelation of every cent that's contributed to the, to the Carter Center and, and spent by the Carter Center. And we quantify everything we do. We can tell you exactly how many, guinea, how many uh, privies we built in Africa 
or how many people have had uh, guinea worm and, and, don't, and don't have it now that had it a year ago. We know how many cases of guinea worm are in every village where it still exists. We, we, we count or quantify what we do. So those are the basic principles that I think 50 years or 100 years from now will not be modified dramatically, but will be the foundation for the uh, permanence of the Carter Center. And, and one thing we learned when we came home from the White House was that we still have the resources. We can call on experts in any area, and almost without exception, they will help us. It puts a pretty big responsibility on you. But it's, it's really wonderful. I, um, because Jimmy was present, I can just call anybody, ask them to help me. You see, I've got the best mental health people task force in, in the country. And, and that also has helped us um, make, make well, our programs being successful. And, and after we're gone, mm -hmm. uh, the Carter Center's reputation, <clears throat> I think, will, will uh, carry on a major part of that. All right, thank you. To President and Mrs. Carter, at last year's conversations, you said discrimination against women is one of the greatest problems the world faces. How has the Carter Center made this a priority and how can we get involved? That for me? <clears throat> well, I think um, when you travel around the world, you see that. You see it in our country still. Uh, but, but when you go and see children not being educated and, and um, women doing so much of the work, and it, it's, it's, um, it's there's still discrimination against women. But I think that all of our programs help women. Women do so much of the farming. We teach them to, um, a good way to increase their food grain production. All of our um, health programs, the children learn everything they know about health and, and nutrition. They learn everything from their mother work, about work. And so I think that as we help uh, with health programs and agriculture programs um, and human rights programs in um, the world, uh, that we're helping women. Another thing specifically, I mentioned earlier that we are trying to improve the legal standard of women in the rural areas of Liberia. That's a typical thing. And in the one program that I didn't have a chance to mention earlier is our uh, Ethiopian Public Health Training Initiative. Uh, we have trained there 30,000 health workers, which will be two health workers for every 5,000 people in a village. 100% of them are women. And, and they have the training, I would say, equal at least to a practical nurse. And that's in addition to the 7,000 people that we've trained in Ethiopia as well in the health program that have the same qualifications as an assistant physician or registered nurse. So we concentrate on that health uh, commitment to the women. And I mentioned the, the incidence of malaria. Malaria deaths are caused by preg from among pregnant women and children. So the women, as Rosen says, are responsible for the little children. And a lot of our programs, all of these programs, uh, guinea worm, uh, rubber blindness, trachoma, uh, schistosomiasis, lymphatic polarizers, malaria, all affect women and children much worse than others. And we try to elevate the women's status and, and by, by giving them special training. And, and we're also working on rape issues in Congo. Rape is, is so widespread, trying to do something about that. A uh, question from Mrs. Carter. You and former First Lady Betty Ford spoke out recently about the mental health parity bill. 
What are the chances of the legislation passing this time, and what can we do to support parity? Parity is, in, in insurance, is covering mental illnesses the same you, way you cover any other illnesses. And it's something that I have worked on for a long time, and Betty Ford and I have worked um, together because she was, works on substance abuse and I work on mental health, and, and the funding is all in the same pot. And so um, back a good many years ago, we would go to Washington. She would meet, get the Republicans to meet with us, and I would get the Democrats together to lobby for um, better services, mental health and substance abuse services. And um, recently, well, today I'm afraid to ask because I list for the news tonight, but the Senate was supposed to vote on the parity bill today. Did they vote? I'm, I'm nervous, I'm so nervous about it. Oh, I'm so nervous about it because I, we thought we had the votes, but then when this big bailout came along, I don't know whether we're going to get the, oh, I'm, I'm, but anyway, um, we were at the last minute, we wanted to be sure that we had the members of Congress, and so we were lobbying intensely, and Betty Ford and I wrote a letter, both, we both signed a letter to all of, the, all of the senators and all of the House members, too. So. Right. Okay, a question for both of the Carters. To those of us who have never been to Plains, what about it makes it so special to you, and why have you remained there? It's home. <laughs> Which is, no matter where I am, that's where I always want to be, is at home. Um, it's home, and our family, I, was, I grew up there. Jimmy grew up there. Our families are there. My, my ancestors came to six miles from Plains, Georgia in 1835. 1833. And um, they're, they're my grandfather and grandmother and my mother all gone now. But, um, and we, we have that farm with the cemetery on it of my early ancestors who came there. It's just home and we know everybody and when you go home you're not um, First Lady, you're not former First Lady, you're just Rosalind Carter, and that's what makes it very special to me. Our children can come to Plains, and they can go to church in the Methodist Church, or either one of the two Baptist churches, or the Lutheran Church, and half the choir will be kin to them. <laughs> Plains now has about 635 people, uh, about 60% are African Americans. Uh, we get along well with each other, uh, Plains only votes right on election days, uh, and uh, and our root our roots are just deeply there, and and we uh, we feel at home there. When I came home from the Navy, I could have had a job anywhere in building nuclear-powered ships because I was one of the few people on Earth that knew how to do that, and had the secret clearance. When I came home from being governor, I could have gone, stayed in Atlanta and made a lot of money, more than I make now. And uh, when I came home from the White House, we could have gone different places. We always have come back to Plains. We just feel at home there. And we, um, as I say, we are Jimmy and Rosa, not Mr. President and Miss First Lady. Mm -hmm. And uh, we go to our little church, both Rosa and I are deacons in the church, even though we are Baptists, and, and some Baptists don't like women deacons, but our church uh, voted for Rosa. She's become the most, she's the most famous, she's the most famous female deacon in the world, perhaps. So 
uh, and we just feel at home. That's the main thing. Yeah. And, and if you haven't been, we're having a peanut festival this weekend. We invite you all to come. come down. <laughs> By the way, we have every year here, we have a, a, a briefing, an all-day briefing for people that, that contribute to the Carter Center fairly well. And then uh, the following day, about a half of them, around 200, come down to Plains and spend the night with us and stay over the next morning to hear me teach a Sunday school lesson, a Bible class. And we always have a square dance on the main street of Plains Saturday night. Uh, we stop all the traffic for two hours. Uh, both cars have to go around. And so if you haven't been to Plains, come down. And this weekend, as Rosen says, is a very good time to come because there'll be about 5,000 people in Plains uh, learning all about peanuts and the, uh, and the benefits from that crop. By the way, my family came to Plains a little bit later than Rosen's. We have two farms. One is Rosen. That's the old farm. The new farm, my family bought in, in 1904. So <laughs> we just have to confess we, we just haven't got very far in life. We're still in Plains. <laughs> well, but also we have an excursion plane that, uh, train that comes through Plains four days a week, sometimes unloads as many as 400 people, averages 100 and... 225. Averages 225 people. Um, we have um, the Boyhood Plains is a historical site, um, and Jimmy's Boyhood home has been restored uh, two miles outside of town. We have an antique mall and an antique inn and a mall, an, an inn and an antique mall. <laughs> and Jimmy was, our Better Hometown program uh, was in charge of, Jimmy was in the most active member in our Better Hometown program, and he was in charge of renovating. You can, you can do anything to the inside of the buildings, but you can't change the facade. And so um, I was, he, he appointed me to decorate the inn, which is upstairs over the, we have one block of street, of stores, and uh, just one row on one side of the road. And, um, <laughs> and, and I decorated the inn, we have eight rooms, Seven, seven, because one's a, a, a sitting room. And I decorated them by decades, from 1920s to the 1980s, and it just turned out really good, and you could, you could come and see it, because it's really beautiful. Bring your family and spend the <laughs> Spend the <week>. night. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am... <laughs> I must say that one uh, when President Carter received the Nobel Peace Prize, I happened to be in Japan, and I was in an airport lounge when the press were interviewing him in planes, and the Japanese looked at me and asked if I was American, and what movie set were the Carters speaking from? <laughs> when, when I told them that that's where he lived, they said, no president lives like that. Uh, <laughs> The next question, I am I'm discouraged by the misstatements and distortions so prevalent in this presidential campaign on both sides. Is there a way to elevate the level of discussion or are the campaign managers so convinced that negative, almost vitriolic attacks work that a civilized discussion is impossible? How much control do the candidates actually have over their campaign? Well, this is a question I get often, and, and the, the change has taken place since I ran for president twice. 
uh, when I uh, was a candidate, just a peanut farmer, running against an incumbent president, Gerald Ford, we never referred to each other except as my distinguished opponent. And if I had run a negative television advertisement criticizing Ford personally, it would have been suicidal for me. The people would have rejected it. And the same thing happened uh, later when I ran against Ronald Reagan. We referred to each other as uh, gentlemen and uh, never dreamed of running negative television advertisers criticizing each other just on the issues. But what's happened is that in the last 20 years, uh, money has become the preeminent measure of whether a candidate is viable or not. Uh, and now it, there would be almost a hopeless case for anyone in the Democratic or Republican Party to hope to get the nomination if they couldn't raise $100 million. And a lot of that money is spent on negative advertising, and, and really it comes down to the fact that the American people deplore and condemn negative advertisements, but they work. And if they didn't work, they wouldn't be used. And so that's why it continues. And, and the bad thing is that that animosity that exists between candidates personally, at the presidential level, the U.S. Senate level, the Congress level, and so forth, carries on to Washington. And so there's an incompatibility of even normal friendship or cooperation between the Democrats on the one side and Republicans on the other. When I was president, I, I counted on the moderate Republicans as much as I did the Democrats to help me, even more so in, in many occasions. There was no difference. And almost every bill was debated freely on the floor of the House and Senate. That's no longer the case. Each uh, party goes into a party caucus now, and they decide how they're going to vote on a bill, and it's very <laughs> binding on all the members, even if they don't agree with it. If they go out and vote against the way that a majority of their party tells them to vote, they lose their committee membership or their committee chairmanship. So it, it keeps our country divided, not just on election day, but uh, in between as well. It's a very serious problem. And, and I'm afraid this time uh, we've seen the same thing happen at the presidential candidate level. This is going to be a very important election. I don't, I don't think there's ever been any case when the issues are more sharply divided. And uh, Rosa and I uh, observe it very carefully, as you possibly know. And uh, we, we don't get involved directly in it, but we always uh, are, are eager and willing to answer questions about the, about the democratic process. But I think also, I think the president surely has control over, his, over what goes on in the campaign. I mean, you see these ads on TV and with a candidate saying, I approve this ad. They didn't ha wouldn't have to approve one if they were not. That's right. Yes. didn't have to approve it, um, and, and I, my, my, I just get, and my insides tighten up <laughs> when I see something that is so ugly, and then the candidate comes up and says, I approve this message. Makes me lose a lot of respect. Did the questionable election in Nigeria lower the acceptable standards of fair elections on the African continent? Yes. Nigeria has had three elections. Uh, the last three elections have been complete, completely fraudulent. There's nothing honest about them. They have been absolutely stolen. And every international observer and every member of the population in Nigeria knows that they were dishonest. And now the new president, uh, who was elected under doubtful premises, 
In fact, the Supreme Court still hasn't ruled for sure that he's the president. Uh, we hope that he will be, uh, his name is Yaradua. We'll, we're trying to work with Yaradua, the Carter Center is, to get him to really reform the political system in Nigeria. But the answer is, it's the most, it's the most completely uh, dishonest elections that we have ever seen. I would say that, uh, and it's happened three times in a row, I would say that the, the, the most perfect elections we've ever seen have been in Palestine. They have had three elections there. There's not been a single instance of dishonesty or fraud or, or violating the rules or violence or anything else. They've been perfect because they have an election commission that's made up of extremely distinguished Palestinians, uh, either incumbent or former presidents of universities, uh, retired uh, judges and so forth, and they, their reputations are so high they don't want anything to happen, they would cast a reflection on them. So the quality of elections vary a lot. Nigeria was the worst. President and Mrs. Carter, what do you think of the Wall Street bailout? <laughs> I'll let Jimmy out. <laughs> well, uh, uh, I think that it's necessary. I believe that the proposal put forward by Mr. Paulson is uh, extremely faulty. It's only three pages of outline. It gives him dictatorial power with no supervision. It doesn't guarantee that the American taxpayers will have an, an investment so that, so that if a company is bailed out with U.S. funds, that the taxpayers will benefit if a profit accrues. There's no limit in the proposal by Paulson uh, on the salaries of uh, companies that come to the treasurer and say, bail me out. They could be making 10, 15 million dollars a year and would be paid out of taxpayer funds. This is not right either. So I think that if the Congress puts on the, uh, on the Secretary of Treasury, these kind of restraints, it may be uh, acceptable. Obama came out today with, with four uh, provisos, the ones that I've just outlined to you. And I don't insinuate that McCain doesn't agree. But Obama spelled them out quite clearly today, and I think that's the basic position of the Democrats. It would still permit the Treasury to go ahead and, um, and bail out uh, firms, but it would make sure that the taxpayers will benefit, that there wouldn't be these golden parachutes, uh, and there, there would be uh, openness or transparency about what they do, and there would be some supervisory group of distinguished people chosen by the Congress that would monitor everything that the Secretary of Treasury does with this $700 billion. I think you probably know that that's $10,000 for every family in America. That's what it amounts to. And uh, it's much more. Uh, that we spent on the total Iraq war. I hope that uh, it goes through expeditiously with those restraints on it uh, that I've just outlined to you. I don't want to belabor the subject, but, but what has caused it is, is a very interesting thing, and I'm, I'm going to give you a little mathematics that, that I hope will be simple. Suppose you are a company and you have $100 then under the old rules, you could take that $100, and the $100 might be depositors who put that $100 in your bank. You could lend out the $100, and you might, say, make 10% profit. That means on your $100, you could make 
or $10 profit, right? But under the new rules, those companies can now borrow 30 times as much as they own and invest all of that money. Let's just say that you borrow 10 times as much. You, borrow, you own $100, you borrow $1,000. You invest $1,000. Only 100 up is yours. You earn $110. That's 10% of $1,100, right? You pay the interest on your loan and you might have $100 left over. So you only owned $100 and you've just made $100 profit, right? But you can also lose $100 and you only own $100. That's what's happened. I'm exaggerating, but, but I think that gives you kind of a clear picture of what has been done. And, and now, of course, the, the two remaining banks on Wall Street have now said they're going to become regular banks so that they can only lend what they actually own plus what their depositors put into the bank instead of the, the enormous uh, profit-making that we've seen drive our economy into, uh, into the basement. What are the main challenges today for Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's government in Liberia, and how do you think she's doing? Well, she has inherited a country that had been at war for 18 years. Rosa and I have been going over there since before 1990, and that's a, that's a long time ago. At that time, Charles Taylor was a main warlord, and he controlled 95% of the country, out in except, everything except Monrovia, which was control, controlled by a military group sent in primarily from Nigeria. And we finally had an election later on, and, and, and Charles Taylor was elected. I mentioned him not by name earlier. He was elected because a lot of people had known him who lived in the rural areas as the only leader that he had known, and he had done some fairly good things. But they were afraid that if he was not elected, he would go back to war. And so he was voted in office, and he became a horrible, one of the worst leaders in the nation, in the world. He was uh, convicted of crimes. He went into hiding in Nigeria and stayed there for a long time, and now he's in custody, and he's waiting to be tried for his crimes. So that's what uh, Helen Johnson Sirleaf has inherited. As you know, she has a very distinguished record in, in, uh, in the World Bank. She's an expert on uh, governance and also on finances. So she has the problem of bringing back her country from the brink of economic and social and political disaster. Uh, over half the people in Liberia, at the time she was, took office after we held the election and she was successful, over half the people in Liberia lived on less than 50 cents a day one of the poorest countries on earth. And it's almost impossible for us to conceive how you could exist on 50 cents a day and pay for your clothing, pay for your food, pay for your housing. You see, you have nothing left for education, for health care, for self-respect, for dignity, hope for the future. And that's what she's inherited. So far, she's done a very good job. And the World Bank, the IMF, and major countries like ours and the ones in Europe uh, have confidence in her. And as, as soon as she can put together a package of, uh, of presentations to make to show that the money will be spent wisely, and she's doing that quite rapidly, then funds are coming in to help the people of Liberia. As you probably know also, I'm telling you things you know, this is the only country in Africa that has been associated with the United States down through history. 
because a group of uh, liberated slaves went over from this country very early in the 1800s and formed a government. And she's a product of that government. She's an enlightened person, and she, and she won her election over a star soccer player, a very famous uh, athlete, uh, in the election that we monitored, uh, also fair and square. So she's got a great challenge, and we're working side by side with her in every way we can. The next question is from four sisters, ages 7, 9, 11, and 12. Hello. <laughs> My sisters and I were adopted three and a half years ago from the Ukraine. We are concerned about the recent Russian aggression toward Georgia and the threat to Ukraine, and we are interested in your view of the situation. Well, it is a serious problem. I don't think that Ukraine is in any danger. Uh, my wife and I have been to, um, to Ukraine and to met with the leaders there. We are fairly familiar with the, with the country. And uh, as you know, it was one of the um, provinces of the Soviet Union and became an independent nation after Gorbachev instituted Glasnost and Perestroika and the Soviet Union fragmented into a number of republics. That's one of them. Georgia is another one. And Georgia is the one that's been in the, in the news lately. Uh, the Soviet Union kind of feels surrounded, unfortunately. Uh, they've done quite well economically because they have enormous supplies of oil and natural gas, and they've built pip pipelines madly to supply oil and natural gas to Europe and other parts of, of that continent. Recently, the thing that happened in Georgia was that their leader, uh, maybe encouraged by the United States, moved into two provinces of Georgia that, were, that always wanted to be independent. They always wanted to be associated with, uh, with Russia. And when he moved in, uh, Mr. Putin, who's now the uh, prime minister of Russia, was waiting for a chance to go into those provinces, and he did. And he went further than that into Georgia itself. He's now withdrawn from Georgia, but he's still maintaining control over those two breakaway provinces. This has brought to the forefront the threat to Ukraine that I'm sure uh, affects you and your parents, or former parents, and that is what will happen if Ukraine does move more toward the west, say to NATO, as Georgia was preparing to do. We don't yet know whether NATO, which, is a, which was formed originally to combat the Soviet Union, will accept Georgia or the Ukraine, but it's uh, likely that it will happen in the future. And I think that if they do become members of NATO, that the Soviet Union would be quite strongly discouraged from going into Ukraine because then the uh, members of NATO are pledged to defend, not especially militarily, but to defend the uh, integrity of, uh, of the nations that are members of NATO. So I would guess that in the future, uh, Ukraine might be threatened, but uh, it'll be a, remain an independent nation. And I think that the rest of the world will be strong enough in opposition to prevent the Russians from making any moves that will threaten your former relatives and those who still live in Ukraine. So I think Ukraine is, is secure for the foreseeable future. Where would this country be today if your energy plan had been followed? What? I didn't hear it. Well, my energy plan. Well, let me, let me say quite quickly that when I became president, the energy problem was much worse than it is now. We, under President Nixon and then 
Ford inherited. We had uh, horrible uh, shortcomings of gasoline. There were long lines at all the gas pumps. Uh, we had an embargo against us by all the Arab members of OPEC and a secondary boycott against any corporation in America that did business with Israel. So that's what I inherited. We were importing then 9 million barrels of oil per day from those countries and other members of OPEC. So I decided as a major commitment of my whole administration to devote my time to bringing about a transformation in the whole energy policy of our country to reduce dramatically our dependence on imported oil. And we did it by increasing production in our own country without disturbing the, the environmentally sensitive areas offshore. Uh, we did it by developing uh, other sources of energy, solar energy. Uh, we put in a lot of dams in our, in our country, uh, utilized dams already existent to let them produce electricity and feed into the pipelines. We ordained by law strict efficiency standards on houses. Uh, the laws that I passed with Congress help require now that all the houses built since then have to be very well insulated. All the electric motors built, all the refrigerators and stoves built and sold have to be very high efficiency. So that's cut down dramatically our dependence on and waste of energy. Uh, so by the time that my policies went into effect in five years, we had cut down from 9 million barrels a day to 4.5 million barrels a day of imported oil. Now it's 13.5 million barrels a day because the Bush administration in particular has gone to bed with the oil companies and the major automobile companies as well. And they, our American oil companies are quite eager for us to import as much oil as we will because they own not only the oil wells in our country, but they also own the oil wells in other countries like Nigeria and, and, um, and, and Venezuela and so forth, Indonesia. And so that's what's happened. And when President Reagan came into office, symbolically he removed the solar panels from the top of the garage at the White House, and he disbanded the requirement that Ford and I had initiated that required automobiles to increase their fuel efficiency. When I was inaugurated, the average automobile in America got 12 miles per gallon. Ford and I implemented a rule that they had to increase to 27 and a half million, I mean 27 and a half miles per gallon. And President Reagan did away with that. And so did his successors in office. Now, of course, the chickens have come home to roost. And, and we're back in a much worse situation uh, than we ought to be. Uh, we have uh, opportunities now, I think, with a lot of publicity about the, about the danger of, of uh, access to oil, uh, competition that didn't exist when I was president from China and India for, this, for the oil supplies that are there, and the escalating prices in oil as well. All of those factors have caused uh, public officials, including both presidential candidates, to pledge that they'll work for Congress basically to do what I did, uh, back in the 1970s, and I hope that that will come to pass. How would you advise the next administration regarding the U.S. relationship to Pakistan, specifically in respect to terrorist strongholds? Well, I noticed that President uh, Bush today met with the new president of uh, Pakistan, uh, which is a good move. 
what we have uh, seen in the past, of course, is Pakistan under a relative uh, dictatorship. And now that has been removed after seven years, I believe, and a, and a, a democratic government has now been elected. They still have a long way to go. Uh, I would like very much to see the former Chief Justice of the Supreme Court restored to his office, but the incumbent uh, political party uh, is also accused of some crimes that might be punished, and so they're very careful about that. The, the problem that relates to security is that out of Afghanistan, now the uh, Taliban have become uh, very adept at moving into the high cliffs and remote areas of Pakistan. Uh, a few years back after I came home from the, from, from the um, White House, Rose and I went there to the Khyber Pass, uh, and, and we met with about 3,000 people who were fighting against the Russian-Soviet uh, invasion then. And, and you could tell from just that viewpoint that, that if they do in, come into Pakistan and hide, it's very difficult for us to get to them. The last week or so, as you know, the United States has actually been launching missiles or dropping bombs to kill uh, leaders of the Taliban that we suspect are in homes. In, in one case, we, we killed 90 innocent persons because we made a mistake and we've now apologized for that. But the new president of Pakistan has said that, we would, that they would not any longer in, uh, permit the United States to strike across inside Pakistan uh, unless the Pakistan government approves. So the best approach, obviously, is for us to now form a solid uh, political and military <clears throat> agreement with Pakistan so that they will agree to let their army cooperate with our army and, and our whole military in seeking out uh, Taliban who are in Pakistan and uh, committing uh, crimes of uh, atrocity and terrorism. That's the best approach. And I hope that today was the first step in the two presidents getting together. But uh, Pakistan has a very formidable army, or ought to, because we've given them about $10 billion to build their army. We don't know how much of that money was stolen, uh, went by corruption. But uh, with their army and military working harmoniously with ours, I think jointly we can take care of the Taliban problem in Pakistan increasingly effectively. This one is for both of you. Uh, what is your secret to staying married for so long? Well, it was hard when we came home from the White House because it was the first time we were together at home every day. <laughs> but we learned to give each other space, and I think that's the secret. Um, I do some things. I do my things. He does his things. We do almost everything together. Um, and um, it's just been a good life. <laughs> we, we try to end up every day, um, no matter how difficult the day has been between us, uh, getting <laughs> along before we go to sleep. And uh, that's helped. And, and as Rogan said, I think the most important thing is, is give each other plenty of latitude to develop our own interests and, 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 and our own pursuits. But I wrote a book recently called Sharing Good Times. You might want to look it over if you're interested in the subject or if your marriage is uh, in danger. And <laughs> what we've tried to do is to find as many things that we both like to do together that are very exciting and interesting uh, and challenging and innovative. And so it's given us not only a chance to hold our marriage together, but also to give us uh, a chance to have old age not creep on, up on us as, as rapidly as it would have 
otherwise. <laughs> but the main thing is that we love each other very much, mm-hmm. maybe more than when we got married. What is the future for arms control and nuclear nonproliferation? Is the anti-ballistic missile treaty abrogated? Well, the United States, in effect, has abrogated the anti-ballistic missile treaty, or the nonproliferation treaty. We've already discounted the, the anti-missile treaty completely, and we are building a uh, an anti-ballistic missile capability in. Uh, Alaska, ostensibly toward North Korea, but everybody knows it's toward China. And we are now putting anti-ballistic missiles, at least we got an agreement to put them uh, in Czechoslovakia and in uh, Poland, ostensibly toward Iran that doesn't have nuclear missiles yet, but really against the Soviet Union, Russia. And so we've completely eliminated any application of the anti-ballistic missile treaty. The most important one is a non-proliferation treaty which every nation on earth has signed, except four. North Korea, they were signatories, but they disavowed it recently, and they are now putting their nuclear program back into effect in the last few days. Israel, uh, India, and Pakistan. With those four exceptions, every country on earth has uh, pledged itself to abide by the non-proliferation treaty, including, by the way, Iran. And uh, the Carter Center has been quite deeply involved in this. The first major international conference we had here was on that exact subject. And Henry Kissinger was here to join with me. Sam Nunn was here. uh, And the top uh, Soviet leaders at that time, including uh, Ambassador Dobrynin, and all the scientists that that had developed the the Soviet nuclear system. It just happened that while they were at the Carter Center, this is a footnote to history, is when Chernobyl uh, blew up. And they were all at the Carter Center. And they spent the rest of the day on the telephone trying to find out how serious it was. And then they went back to Russia as quickly as they could. There, there are two major efforts now being made to reduce the level of arsenals. Uh, we have about 6,000 nuclear weapons all on, you might say, trigger alert. The Russians have about the same number. Great Britain, France, China, and, Ind- and uh, India and Pakistan and, and Israel also are in the nuclear club now. So is North Korea. They've exploded one device, and they have probably six others that they can explode. And so one group is headed up by, by Sam Nunn and by Bill Perry and by... Uh, former uh, Secretary of State uh, Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, two Democrats and two Republicans. And and the Carter Center is trying to help them bring about a change globally to reduce the level of arsenals and to take the ones existent off of hair-trigger alert. And there's another very strong move called Global Zero that will have a major international conference in Paris I think on the 8th of December. I'll be there. And the so-called elders, of which I'm a member, uh, will, are supporting both of those. So there are some uh, stirring moves now to uh, try to bring new public attention to the threat of, uh, of nuclear warfare because the threat 
now is just as serious as it was back in the Cold War days. Uh, any sort of accidental explosion would be bad, and now we have the additional threat of terrorism because the terrorists only have to get a small nuclear device. They don't have to have a missile to launch it. They can put a, a nuclear device in a ship and let that ship come into Los Angeles or San Diego Harbor or to Oakland Harbor or to Savannah or to New York and explode the device or threaten the people of New York that the device will explode if we don't do certain things. They can blackmail our country. So it's much more dangerous now. And so I think this is a major move that I hope all of you will support. By the way, the Global Zero program people are making a, a motion picture. Uh, it's being sponsored by the same person that made the motion picture about me called Man From Plains, and also that made the movie of Al Gore called uh, uh, An Inconvenient Truth. An Inconvenient Truth. So they're in the process of making the film now. So I hope that public attention brought about by people like the one that issued this uh, question will support this effort. What do you think about the problems in South Africa with Mbeki out of office and the state of things and the crisis in Zimbabwe? I hate to say this, but I'm glad to see Mbeki go. Um, he and I have had some terrible arguments. In fact, I think the closest I've come to a fist fight, <laughs> at least since I left the White House, <laughs> was with him because uh, Rosa and I went on a round Africa trip with Bill uh, Gates and his wife, his senior, Bill Gates senior and his wife, as the Gates Foundation was getting involved in AIDS. And, and I had a, a confrontation with him, Becky, who said that there was no such relationship as, um, as we were trying to address with, uh, with AIDS. And that the medicines that we were given to prevent the death of little children because their mothers had AIDS uh, was just a white person's uh, plot to cut down on the population of black people. So he and I ha had very horrible words, and uh, he has just recently changed his position a little bit. So I I I've not been uh, much in favor of him. So uh, nowadays, as you know, the, the African National Congress, who was a foundation party for Nelson Mandela and also Mbeki, has elected a new chairman. Uh, he's not a member of the parliament and cannot become the president. So the next step will be for the African National Congress to name an interim president to replace Mbeki, who will step down quite soon. And, uh, and then they will have another election and the new chairman of the uh, African National Congress will undoubtedly be the next president. Uh, I think Mbeki has also made a serious mistake in supporting Mugabe uh, all these years, uh, who's uh, the leader of, uh, of, of uh, Zimbabwe, as you know. And um, he should have been deposed uh, a long time ago. And his main supporter, his only supporter uh, in Africa has been Mbeki, who because of his stature and because of the importance of uh, South Africa, uh, has been the prevailing voice. So he's basically kept us and others from having an honest election in Zimbabwe to bring about uh, a new leadership. So I think with him gone, 
uh, it'll be uh, improvement in the long term. Briefly, though, in the near future, the, the recent very fragile agreement that was worked out uh, between Mugabe and his opponent to share the responsibilities of governance might be in danger. So there might be a temporary setback, but in the long term, I think it's good for Africa. And now we are down to the uh, final question. And I would ask you to remain at your places after we thank the Carters and let them leave the auditorium because we have one more announcement. And the final question is, President Carter, what new initiatives would you envision for the Carter Center over the next decade? John could answer that question better than I. <laughs> We're always looking to the future. And um, what we've decided lately that I think will give us a lot more flexibility is allocating part of our income from our very large endowment, half of it, and half of the surplus funds left over from the current year to the program managers of the Carter Center to spend. So there'll be a much more flexibility now in exploring new ideas. And, and I would guess that we will take on a, a number of additional new things, say, in the field of healthcare. One might very well be to eradicate malaria and maybe a lymphatic polariasis from Hispaniola, the big island, as you know, that includes uh, Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Uh, just this past week, I wrote the presidents of both those countries and asked them to cooperate with the Carter Center. But with that extra funding, and with the excitement that can come with the prospect of never again having malaria or lymphatic filariasis in Haiti or the Dominican Republic. That's the kind of thing that the Carter Center can do in the future that we haven't been able to do in the past. By the way, that's made possible by the fact that the Carter Center houses and has housed for many years the only institution, it's called the International Task Force on Disease Eradication, with the help of a lot of other experts done uh, Don Hopkins, Don, Don Hopkins and, and his crew have brought in to the Carter Center a group that analyzes every human illness on earth and, and tried to ascertain which ones of all those illnesses might possibly be completely eradicated from the face of the earth. There's only been one eradicated in, the, in history, and that's smallpox 30 years ago. Uh, now polio and uh, guinea worm are targeted, and we have very good hopes on guinea worm. But there are others as well that might be addressed. And I think malaria is one. By the way, if we can uh, eliminate malaria in that uh, island, then we won't have any more malaria left in this hemisphere. So that's the kind of thing that the Carter Center can take on by moving to new uh, fields of, of effort. I would say that we can also expand our beneficial influence uh, in this hemisphere and in others as well we can increase the number of elections that we monitor each year. The Carter Center can get much more active uh, in trying to resolve some of the crises in this hemisphere. We've had kind of a vacuum in Latin America and Central America and, and the Caribbean in the last seven years under President Bush. Uh, they've, they've appointed ambassadors from the United States uh, that have not been friendly to the people there but have been friendly too much to the very rich people that in the past have run affairs in those countries. And when new leaders have been elected, we have not cooperated with those new leaders if they don't agree with us on all aspects of politics and, uh, and economics. For instance, uh, Ecuador is one example. 
I would say uh, Bolivia is another example and so forth. And I hope in the future we can reach out to them in a much more effective way. Now we have a very tiny office that we are maintaining in Ecuador and in Bolivia to help them, but we don't have the staff uh, to take care of their basic needs. So this will increase the ability of the Carter Center to do, expand all of its presently ongoing programs of negotiating peace, of helping with mental health, of uh, helping with uh, different health uh, diseases that we're not addressing now. And also it'll be a lot more flexibility in taking on new things that I can't possibly anticipate uh, tonight with you. Let, let me close by saying that you've been very patient tonight. You've, you've listened to my uh, analyses of some very complicated questions. I'm no, no longer in the White House and I don't have as much knowledge as many people do. But uh, I think the questions have been much more devoted to uh, international affairs than ever before, which shows the maturity of the audience, not me. And we are deeply grateful to all of you, every one of you here, for your support and confidence in the Carter Center. And we pray and hope that we will never uh, betray your confidence. Thank you very much. And a special thank you to President and Mrs. Carter for being with us this evening. And I would like to thank each of you for your interest in our work and your interest in learning more about the problems facing our neighbors around the world. The next program in our conversations at the Carter Center, President Carter has already mentioned, it is called Restoring Rights and Rules, a New Human Rights Agenda for the United States. And it will be Wednesday, December 3rd. It coincides with the Carter Center's Human Rights Defenders Conference, which President Carter mentioned, and we will have human rights defenders from around the world here. The event is free to the public. You can RSVP for the event online. Again, that is cartercenter.org conversations. And thank you very much for being with us tonight. We look forward to seeing you at future events. Good night and drive safely. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.